Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Peel Your Phantom Podcast. My name is Saint. I'm still Jim, whether you want me to be or not. Well, you're lucky I want you to be. How you doing, buddy? I'm hanging in there, you know. It is, uh, we, we, we banked a couple episodes uh, in the run-up to Thanksgiving, trying to give ourselves a little bit of holiday time. Um, I know, but, we never uh, do that. Are, what the hell? Yeah, we never do that. But, you know, there were just some, some uh, we try to stay timely. Um, but um, that gave us an opportunity to uh, to discuss Wakanda Forever when it was still fresh in our minds and uh, give a, at least a couple weeks of spoiler moratorium. So right. uh, that was a, kind of a blessing in disguise. But, um, yeah, nice Thanksgiving. My uh, my band had a pretty uh, pretty well-received show uh, Black Friday. So, uh, yeah, it's Excellent. been a good couple of days. How you doing? Man, I, I, I worked uh, through Thursday, so I, I got to take my Thanksgiving uh, on Friday. Went over to my uh, brother-in-law's house, my brother and sister-in-law, and uh, got meat drunk. We have the meat. And only a little bit regular drunk, so <laughs> I, I behaved myself. And I must have done something right because my blood sugar didn't spike at all that day, regardless of how much I ate. And I ate a lot. So, I must be uh, blessed by an angel or something. I didn't uh, didn't have any issues, even with uh, a couple of slices of pie at the end of the night. Mmm, pie. Well, it's funny because Thanksgiving is a very turkey-forward sort of holiday, but everything else is just carbs on carbs. There's the stuffing, there's yeah. the potatoes, there's the rolls, there's the, the flour and the gravy. So, uh, oh, yeah, I guess see, but maybe... Not, uh, when I go to my, my brother-in-law's, though, my brother-in-law likes yeah. to overcompensate. Carl, his name's Carl. Hi, Carl. I doubt he's listening, but hi, Carl. Uh, but he likes to overcompensate. He cooks uh, a turkey. He deep-fries a turkey. And that would be oh. enough. That would be enough. But then he smokes a ham, and that would be enough. But then yeah. he also uh, smoked these uh, skirt steaks uh, wrapped in prosciutto cheese and, and uh, or not prosciutto. Jesus, it was uh, uh, gouda and then uh, something else. I forget what it was, but like meat on meat on meat. Uh, and so I did have the sides, but most of the sides I had were like the green beans or the peas and the carrots sure. and all that. So I did have some mashed potatoes, but that wasn't even close to the star of the show. So, and may, I'm thinking maybe uh, all of that protein just kind of helped flush that sugar right out of me. So, I don't well, know what really it really is. is. What Thanksgiving should be? It should be a, a, a festival of gluttony, uh, not just because um, that's really the one time a year when we can get away with it, largely guilt-free, but also because the more we focus on the food and the family aspect of it, the less we can focus on the problematic colonizer bullshit that kind of comes along with it. So. We're you know, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's just talk about you know, and and the meat on meat on meat, which which incidentally was the name of my sex tape. So, <laughs> fine memories there. <laughs> That's disgusting. It was. Uh, you can get a copy on Amazon. Uh, uh, I don't know how that would slip past their censors, but uh, as far as anything else goes, I mean, like I said, just working, living the dream. Black Friday hit. I didn't go out and spend a ass ton of money. Uh, I did. Uh, I got a little bit of a bonus uh, from work that was unexpected. Uh, nice. I went and immediately went on Amazon and spent it all on on Christmas presents for my wife and my kids, and and uh, which is where it should go. Damn it! Yeah. Responsible. Uh, I man. did treat myself to a nice Indian lunch that day. I went and got a uh, uh, Indian food, uh, butter chicken, spicy butter chicken, and. Non bread and veggie samosas and all that. So yeah, I did do it up a little bit, but uh, most of it was spent on on gifts for the wife and kids. So uh, my favorite That's part of Christmas. I'm not into the whole tradition of decorating and 
this, that, or the other thing. That's more my wife's uh, domain, but I really do love being able to spoil my people. So, but just seeing the, uh, yeah, seeing somebody else's face light up when they just got exactly what they wanted and uh, you were the one that gave it to them, nothing feels better than that. And um, I know that from hanging out with your mom. So, you son of a bitch. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a good couple of weeks. You son of a bitch. You knew um, I was a snake when you picked me up, sucker. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, a few kind of news articles. We're not going to de- delve too much into the newsy bits today. We've got a special guest we're going to bring on here sooner rather than later. So, that we do. Uh, there was a couple of things. Uh, I did notice now, I know I'm not much of a sports ball fan, and I know that you are not much of a sports ball fan. So Definitely not. But I do know we have some listeners who are, and so I'm going to touch on this briefly. It's kind of a big deal. Um, and this comes from CNN, so, you know, take it for what it is. Um, Iran calls for U.S. to be kicked out of the 2022 World Cup after it changes the Iranian flag on social media to show support for the protesters over in Iran. So as many of you may know, it's kind of a tumultuous time uh, politically, uh, socially, in uh, America. Globally. But I was going to say specifically, they've got a lot going on in Iran with uh, uh, protests for women's freedom and women's rights uh, being key among them. And uh, there's a lot. A lot going on there. And uh, so the United States, uh, not the government, but it was, uh, here, I'm looking for the exact name so I get it right. Uh, U.S. Soccer uh, went on one of the graphics that they display on uh, the reporting screens. And for one graphic only, according to this article, they stripped uh, the image of the Republic of Iran off of the flag and just showed the colors, which I guess is hugely uh, defaming for them. Uh, they say, quote, this change was a one-time graphic. We have the main flag on our website and other places, um, but we did it to show support for the women in Iran fighting for basic human rights, but that they had always planned to go back to the original flag. Iran was rather pissed, uh, asking for them to immediately kick the United States out of the tournament and suspend them for 10 games for a, quote, distorted image of the country's flag. Quote, by posting a distorted image of the flag of the Islamic Republic of Iran on its official account, the U.S. football team breached the FIFA charter for which a 10-game suspension is appropriate penalty. Uh, according to the Iran state-aligned Tasnim News Agency. Well, on some level, I'm kind of glad that happened. I mean, not just because it shows support for the uh, for the protesters and for women's rights in a, in a country where women's rights typically are not very well prioritized, to say the slightest. I mean, that's but mild, right? um, yeah, but at least now I have one more sort of exception that proves the rule. Because one of my big arguments against sports is that sports just don't matter, and they really don't. I mean, you know. Um, Sports are a distraction. It's bread and circuses for the masses, and it's fine. Um, I, I'm, I'm very anti-football because of the um, things like the jock entitlement and the hand-waving off things like the homophobia and the domestic abuse and the, uh, 
you know, the, the referendums that happen in cities that, um, you know, should we, you know, give this billionaire team owner a brand new stadium for free? And, and no matter how many times they vote it down, if they get one yes vote out of everybody, then they go ahead and push it through. And I'm just, I'm very anti-sports for those reasons. But because sports don't matter, and that's kind of been my argument that, you know, When's the last time any kind of... It's a game. And I, I'm, I'm willing to admit that there are things that I enjoy that don't matter. And I'm, I'm pretty transparent about that. Like, I like video games. They make a lot of money. Do they matter to the culture? I mean, to a degree, there are some narrative things there that are pretty cool. But, I mean, they don't change the course of history. Um, <clears throat> sometimes movies can, music can, art can. And games are definitely art. But, you know, comic books... They're fun, they're entertainment, they're not going to change the course of history, and I kind of put sports into that same bucket, except for, you know, obviously you don't get a concussion from reading the latest issue of Fantastic Four, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but once in a while, every once in a while, there's some kind of an international thing that happens in the world of sports that actually affects world history and world events, and uh, whether it's Jesse Owens, um, you know, kind of stuffing that whole white supremacy thing in Hitler's face at the Berlin Olympics, or whether it's this thing happening at the World Cup, once in a while, there is a thing that happens in the world of international sports that does have an impact on the global socio-political climate, and um, this will be one of those things. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to see, and I really hope that um, as much as they were in the right to do that, and as much as I think it's just so much you know, pissing match saber-rattling for Iran to be all pissed off about it. Yeah, I, I guess we'll kind of see what happens with it. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was noteworthy enough that, uh, I mean, because we, we do talk about everything is fandom and fandom is everything, and sports fandom is certainly a very popular uh, branch of fandom, so I figured it was worth a mention, especially given the, the popularity of the... Uh, the World Cup going on and all that. So. Yeah, and I don't want to run counter to our manifesto here or our maxim, but I mean, I, I there are certain things that I'll say, you know, I, I do agree everything is fandom and fandom is everything. There are certain things that I'm just not a fan of, not because I don't like them or don't appreciate or respect them, just because I missed the boat right. on them or whatever. But I mean, you know, the whole football thing, I just, yeah, I'll, I'll, that could be an entire episode on its own about why football is problematic in the culture, but I don't want to beat that dead horse today. we got other shit to get to, but it still is just... I don't know. Soccer is not football, even though it should be. It is football. I mean, internationally, it's football. And that's a much better name for it. But American football is the thing that I have an issue with because of the um, just all the problematic BS that swirls around it. But yeah, don't you. want to uh, don't want to get on that soapbox today. Got other things to get to that are much more important and timely. Don't beat that dead horse. <laughs> Other news items, um, really, really sad news, actually. Um, Jason David Frank, who sure. a lot of us know from our childhood, Absolutely. who was the original Green Power Ranger, um, died just before Thanksgiving at um, 49 years old, and apparently it was a self-inflicted injury, which is just adds, you know, anytime anybody's taken that young, it's terrible, but anytime that uh, somebody is it loses a fight with mental illness, it's just... Um, Tragic. It's even more so, yeah. especially somebody who was just so instrumental in so many of our childhoods and brought us all so much happiness and, and was not able to, um, you know, get any of that back for himself. It's just, uh, it's a sad day. Yeah, coming straight off the heels of talking about Kevin Conroy and the legacy that he left, another mm -hmm. big, huge part of him. I mean, I was never the biggest Power Rangers fan. Um, I was a little bit outside of the age demographic by the time that started coming around. The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, 
but not far enough outside that it didn't catch me a little bit. And really, yeah. the parts that caught me were due to Jason David Frank. I liked the idea of his Green Ranger coming in as a foil for them, a plant by Rita, and then, you know, joining the side of the Angels, and uh, and he became basically the champion of the Power Rangers throughout several mm-hmm. different series. He's been championing this this particular leg of fandom for for years, and it's all, yeah. It's if there was every been, guy that went to the con, it was going to be him. If there was every guy, I that actually did saw or, him was, at yeah. a con. Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. I didn't go meet him, but I kind of. I walked past his line and I saw him greeting people and, and hugging people and taking pictures with him and he just seemed like a really genuine dude and and yeah and and really kind of in it for the fans and then mm-hmm. you love to see that in your in your heroes that they're there for their fans that they're supportive of the fans and they're not kind of like uh, abrasive or you know just an acting to be acting you want them to be kind of embracing of that fandom so. Um, yeah. He did lose his battle with mental illness, and uh, at least all reports are indicating that he took his own life. And so, uh, we definitely want to uh, send a heartfelt um, message to his his fans and his family, and and we definitely feel your loss, and we're sorry for your loss, and 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 he was just an amazing amazing geek, and, and that'll always be remembered, I think. This whole thing really hasn't changed me. I mean, uh, I just get recognized now, you know, by kids and stuff. It's great to be able to be a positive role model on kids. In slightly more upbeat green cloud superhero news, uh, a story (laughs) dropped today that I saw that um, kind of made me laugh a little bit. Uh, Apparently, Marvel had to spend a couple of CGI dollars that were underreported on the set of Wakanda Forever. Ooh, ooh, uh, let me guess. Did he have a mustache? No, no, he didn't have a mustache. No, if he had, no. um, uh, oh, it, right, it, it that was Superman. Been... That was Superman. Right, the jade bone in the nose might have covered it up, but he did actually have a mustache. Uh, we're talking about Tina Huerta, who played Namor in the uh, most recent MCU film as of the time of the right. recording. <laughs> They're coming out all the time. Uh, Wakanda Forever, which we broke down in the last episode that we did. And uh, there were some behind-the-scenes set photos, uh, the, the green screen photos, some behind-the-scenes photos of, of him, um, you know, on the set um, doing some shooting. And uh, some people, some, some sharp-eyed viewers noticed a little bit of a discrepancy in some of the costuming, <laughs> shall we say, between what, what showed up in the behind-the-scenes photos. What are you yeah. looking at? Yeah, uh, between What's what we saw in the behind-the-scenes photos... Yeah. And what, <laughs> speaking of walls, we'll get to that later. Um, and and what, what actually showed up on screen. And Tenoch yeah. Huerta was put in the, I'm going to say unenviable, unenviable, but we all know the truth, uh, position of having to admit that, yes, Marvel did have to drop a certain amount of, of, of CGI budget on reducing his bulge in the green scaly shorts. Hashtag um, humble brag. Yeah, hashtag <laughs> uh, And yeah, I mean, uh, I, I checked out the pictures. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say it. I, you, you know, did. It's, he, he's he's a good looking fella. And uh, yeah, there was definitely some some more uh, some more stuff <laughs> happening downstairs. Uh, That's in your journalistic BTS integrity. Shots. That's your journalistic integrity. Oh yeah, integrity I'm, taking I'm, over. I'm doing my job, man. I'm doing the research. Um, <laughs> there's definitely some, some more happening downstairs than what we actually saw on the screen. Um, which uh, is even more impressive when you consider that uh, so many of his scenes were shot in the water. Well, ordinarily, I wouldn't mind, but... But what? Well, I just got back from swimming in the pool, and the water was cold. Uh. 
You mean shrinkage. Um, so good for Tanakwerta. Uh, yeah, b- b- big ups to you, dude. No pun intended. Um, for, for Marvel and Disney having to uh, having to airbrush out your your, your prodigious package in, in your green scaly namer shirts. Good yeah. for you. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, one last news article we're going to get to, and then uh, we're going to talk briefly about the sponsor for this week's program. But this uh, this uh, kind of ties in uh, tangentially. Like I said, I like to tie things tangentially to things. But uh, this last article is kind of an ongoing battle. We don't have anything today to talk about with the ongoing dumpster fire that is Twitter. Um, that's it's kind still of burning. Just burning and business as usual. Or business is unusual, I guess. But uh, more developments as they uh, arise. But uh, this article that I popped up here, it's an ongoing feud. Uh, and many uh, fans of my caliber and stripe would understand this one. Uh, and this is titled, Star Trek's George Takei responds to William Shatner's recent comments. Oh my. And that's a pretty innocuous title because William Shatner's always making comments and George Takei's always making comments. And they've been barbing yeah. back and forth at each other for 60 years. I mean, they have never really gotten along. And most of the time, it'll go back. It'll, what it all boils down to is, oh, George Takei's a glory hound. He's trying to uh, get more attention and get more press. And, oh, well, William Shatner's a boorish... Uh, limelight stealing hack and i mean it's just it's back and forth and back and forth but this latest uh issue responds to uh when uh when shatner went up in the uh, dick rocket to fuck space as it were with uh mm-hmm. amazon yeah. prime bezos there uh takei had said uh of his flight that he was quote unquote unfit and a quote unquote guinea pig Ahead of mm. uh, the Kirk actor's SpaceX flight. To which Shatner responded, George has never stopped blackening my name. These people are bitter and embittered. I have run out of patience with them. Why give credence to people consumed by envy and hate? So was that it was a SpaceX sa- flight? Yes. I, oh, I okay, the mild program note. We, we got our uh, billionaires fucked up there. Right? Yeah. You know, the fact that we live in a world that we have to actually differentiate between which of the three billionaires are fucking space with their dick rocket is, is a little bit disconcerting, but whatever. So that would have been a Musk joint. My bad, my bad. But uh, No, no. Now, <laughs> we have to be accurate. <laughs> Takei has come back, speaking of journalistic integrity. George Takei says in a recent Guardian article that there, were plenty of com- there was plenty of camaraderie among the members of Star Trek's original cast, but quote-unquote none of us got along with Shatner, who he alludes to as being a prima donna. Besides that, Takei refuses to respond or rise to what he sees as Shatner's bait. Quote, I know he came to London to promote his book and talked about me wanting publicity by using his name, so I decided I don't need his name to get publicity. I have much more substantial subject matter that I want to get publicity for, so I'm not going to refer to Bill in this interview at all. Although I just did. He's just a cantankerous old man, and I'm going to leave him to his devices. I'm not going to play his game. When asked about Shatner as a younger man, Takei says, quote, He was self-involved. He enjoyed being the center of attention. He wanted everyone to kowtow to him. Which pretty much lines up with everything we've ever read about the uh, back and forth between Takei and, and Shatner, respectively. So, 
I mean, well, I'm 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 not going to take sides on this deliberately because uh, <clears throat> I don't want to put our guests in an awkward position of uh, <laughs> having to uh, take up sides in any of that. So, yeah, I'll just say that I find that interesting, and I, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of. Um, I just I I understand the reasons for for having a, a workplace beef. Um, it's a shame they can't get along. Um, they're both great it, actors, but uh, it's that's been where such I'm a long time, it. and they're still at. Yeah. I mean, sixty years yeah. is a long time. I mean, kind of. Yeah. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold you back anymore. Let it go. Um. But I do, like you say, I find the whole thing rather fascinating. So, uh, before we bring on our guest, we would like to also mention our sponsor for this podcast, Extra Wallets. Now, Jim, you and I have both been using the Extra Wallets for a few weeks now. Uh, how do you feel about your, you're still using I mean, the Parliament? I'm still in love with it. Yeah, I, I have the uh, the Parliament wallet. It is a... Um, a very compact uh, front pocket wallet. I do still have it in my back pocket a lot of the time, but it is a compact front pocket wallet. It's about the size of a uh, a deck of cards or a pack of cigarettes, maybe. A uh, very dated reference there. Smaller iPod, kind of. It's, it's really slim, and, and it's got a really nice form factor. But um, the thing that I... I'm, there's so much I'm impressed with about it. The, the leather is just amazing, first and foremost. I've, I've had wallets that I've had for years and years where the leather gets better with time, and I can't imagine how this can get better. It's just really buttery, and I really love it. Um, it's got uh, just enough space to be able to put in a couple of cards, some business cards, uh, uh, driver's license, and there's an elastic band on the outside of the main card compartment where you can stuff a couple of bills in there. And the yep. card compartment holds up uh, between five and seven cards, and it's got this really awesome trigger mechanism that I'm going to hold it to the mic and go... Right there. You pop out your cards, they just fan. It's an audio-only medium, but, you know, you can imagine. They just fan out in a, uh, a little ziggurat, and you can sort of, like, pick which one you, uh, you'd like to use. And it's just everything about this wallet, from the form factor to the, the way that it looks to the way that it feels to the way that it sits in your pocket, it's just I can't, I can't imagine yeah. anything I'd improve about it. I really just love this thing, and I would be saying that even if they weren't helping us out with the podcast. It's just a fantastic piece of kit. So one of the things that I found that I really enjoy, and this is kind of a... Uh, locked into the person who has uh, multiple versions. Like you, I have a version of the Parliament Wallet. I have the, the lovely, uh, I think it's a sage green. It's fantastic. Um, but I have switched over uh, more recently to what they call their Senate card holder, and that's the, the very slim uh, card holder only, wrapped in leather, still beautiful, still well done. Uh, mine's in blue, steel blue. It's fantastic. But what I've really found um, interesting is like there's a there are occasions where I want to take the stuff that I have in the other Parliament wallet that I don't take with this, and so uh, I'll need to switch wallets. But when you're using the Senate uh, in in place of the Parliament, I've been able to just kind of click that out, instantly remove all my cards in a stack, mm -hmm. and then just put them directly into the Parliament in a stack. It's like a two second procedure. And I've already switched wallets. Every additional thing that I don't normally carry in the Senate is now in the Parliament. I can just slip it in my pocket and go. It's so handy. And I'm not saying you all need to buy uh, both of them. We'd love it if you do. They're a fantastic company. They've been treating us good. Their wallets are fantastic tech. Wonderful little piece of kit. But that's just a little added benefit of having both. Is you can just kind of switch in and out with a breeze. So, Or with a click, rather, I guess. 
Yeah. And if you yeah. want one for yourself, which you do, you need to go to Exter, E K S T E R, and uh, check out everything they have there. You can use promo code Fandom to get ten percent off your order. And um, yeah, any proceeds we receive from this, uh, as you said last week, we're going to be circulating right back into the Fuel the Future charity program uh, that yep. helps get comics into the hands of underprivileged kids. So. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a win-win for everybody. You get a fantastic wallet, some kids get some great comics, and um, the yeah. uh, folks at Exter, uh, you know, move some merchandise that uh, is just some of the most well-made stuff I've ever got my hands on. So, Exter, E-K-S-T-E-R dot com. Go there, pick up a wallet, use promo code FANTOM to get 10% off your order, and uh, do some good for the world. And Absolutely. your wallet. And the wallet you'll put in your pocket, yeah. Uh, now, I, I sent you a picture, just last real quick thing about that. Exter has for uh, the holiday season they've released a limited drop and I've never seen anything like this before it's the Senate card holder like the one that I use but -hmm. instead of being wrapped in leather it is wrapped in plated 14 karat gold I love gold so they've got a very fancy schmancy gold plated wallet and I gotta tell you I'm looking at that thing with some serious envy some serious lust I want it it, it may have to be mine. That might be where Kevin's Christmas money goes this year. So, But uh, E-K-S-T-E-R dot com. Uh, enter code FANDOM at checkout. You will not be sorry. So, I did say that that last news article was tangentially involved with our guest. And it is. Uh, we are bringing back to the program a guest that we've had a number of times. He's a friend of the program. And, and I'm lucky to count him among my friends now. And... And you, of course, have known him a lot longer than me, but uh, not here for the reason you think. We're talking Mm-mm. to today, uh, Mr. John Champion of the Mission Log Podcast. John, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right. Um, look, if you want to talk to Kay and Shatner, I'll, I'll do it. We'll get into it. <laughs> oh my God! Uh, I, I mean, I assumed you had an opinion. I just, yeah. Look, well, I, we're just I we're just fanboys. We don't want to get you in trouble professionally. No, no. I mean, uh, I, I'm not going to say the things that we say here in the office privately when we're not on <laughs> microphones. Um, but can this possibly be one of those situations where both parties are right and both parties are wrong simultaneously? Well, there's there's three sides to every story. There's one side, the other side, and the truth. And exactly. you've met both these men, so you yeah. know. Yeah, because I, I, I want to say to both of them, like, just stop it. Just somebody puts a mic in front of your face or a reporter asks you a question, what you think about somebody else, you can just not answer it. Or, yeah. You know, you can just take the high road and yeah. be the bigger person here and just not answer it instead of taking, you know, taking the opportunity for some snide comment about them. But, I like, I'll, I'll say this. Every time I, um, every time I hear something about... Shatner's ego and he was hard to work with and uh, look I have no problem believing that's true from the point of view of the people who worked with him right, right. at the same time uh David Gerald uh he's posted and he's talked about it publicly as well but I know he's posted on Facebook this kind of reset of your expectations saying okay here's somebody who is the star of a network TV show at a time when there were only three networks at yeah. all, right? Right. And literally, like, all of that pressure, all of that success is on this one person. Um, how could they not, first of all, have their ego inflated by that, but how could they also not maybe do things that then 
feel like they're slighting other people, that that just comes along with the territory. It absolutely does. So it's not to say Mm -hmm. that all those decisions were great, but there were probably also decisions that were made that were based on all these other factors that don't necessarily affect the secondary cast. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. you're, you're right. It, it could be an if an issue of both sides having a point. Yeah, we could see uh, mm. uh, a Shatner yeah. being a bit of an egomaniac, and and maybe you're right. Maybe Derek, David Gerald's correct. Maybe it was because of uh, of the immense pressure that success puts on him. But also, yeah, I mean, I mean I, we at can the see same George time, like, Takei being slighted by it. So. I, well, exactly, exactly. At the same time, don't be a jerk about it. And yeah. and if you get an apology, like. Uh, years ago, I, I, you know, Shatner had that uh, talk show called Raw Nerve, and there's a really good episode. He had Walter Koenig on there, and Walter has not been very outspoken about this stuff. You but never they, hear about him in the news. You really don't. Yeah, but they had this, what I felt like was a pretty genuine moment of Walter saying, like, here's how we felt about you, and here's, here's <laughs> why we felt slighted by you. And, and, you know, to Shatner's credit, of course, there are cameras rolling, he took it on the chin and apologized, and you know what? Like, move on, guys. Life's yeah, too short. Yeah, of course, there's the infamous Shatner roast on Comedy Central where Takei just raked him over the coals for a good 15 minutes. And yeah. It was just yeah. desperately uncomfortable. You could see both of them, actually. Yeah. Shatner trying to laugh and Takei finally saying, I have a chance to get all of this out now. And really right. just taking yeah. him to the hole about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like, guys, you know, somebody put some mic in front of your face. As we're doing now, I'm going to get behind a mic, and I'm not going to talk badly about yeah. my coworkers. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, but you know, that's the thing. We we also we didn't bring you here to talk about Trek as much as yeah. we love doing that with you because there's no no better authority. But I agree with you, boys. Just bury the bat left, move on. Yeah, um, but <laughs> right. uh, there you go. The, the, the reason why we wanted to talk to you today, as not much as we love talking backs. Trek, because they're just there's just nobody's nobody better. But I also know um, from having known you as long as I have that you're also a um, a huge fan of some other stuff that we really have wanted to get into for a while, but really haven't had uh, an opportunity to yet. Um, I think it, there's a lot to dig into with this, but you've always been a huge fan of uh, of James Bond, yeah. and that's something we really wanted to to, to to kind of kick around with you because, yeah, I mean, all that sort of like '60s spy stuff. I mean, I know your Man from Uncle was another big one mm-hmm. of yours, and you know all that stuff. And so we wanted to talk about Bond, and we thought, you know, there's as as much as um, you know, Trek's your bread and butter. I know that Bond is a fandom that that's really a big one for you. So, yeah, we want yeah. to bring that up. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up at that right time where all the the pop culture was sort of exploding around me, and I wasn't there for the '60s spy craze. A little too young for that. But you get to that sweet spot, '70s, '80s, when you know Star Trek was in syndication. It was making a comeback. Star Wars was huge yeah. and of course that spawned Galactica and you know a few years before that we got uh, Space 1999 and then you, you had the it, James Bond was already huge but it was mm-hmm. getting even bigger because of the Roger Moore movies and then um, of course Indiana Jones so like all of the this this pop culture stew that was happening right at the right time for me yeah. you know between about 7 and 15 years old Oh yeah, uh, that's just that's just prime time to sort of mold my brain into the fan that I am, and and that whole image of the quote unquote gentleman spy has been such a a pervasive one, not only through uh, James Bond, but we get things like even Austin Powers movies, The Man from Uncle, mm-hmm. uh, and even into Star Trek with our man Bashir. Yeah, I mean it. 
it touches on every aspect of pop culture. So it's it's only kind of natural that we finally get around to talking about it. So yeah, and it, it see that hits the nail on the head really because I I have a problem with I have a problem with purity tests for any kind of fandom. Like Screw gatekeeping and yeah, yeah. Like yeah. like you, you're not a fan unless you like this particular and only this particular version of this thing. I have a big problem with that. Oh boy, and don't it is, we too? Yeah, yeah. And that is pervasive in Bond fandom. But I think Bond especially is something where, you know, at this point, sixty years later, it's no longer a story about one person told at one particular time. When you say uh-huh. James Bond, you're describing, Kevin, what you just said. You're describing all of these other, you know, quote, gentleman spy series or stories. Right. You are also describing the parodies, which have as much of the cultural landscape as the real thing does. You know? right. So when you say, oh, I'm a James Bond fan, you're also lumping into that our man Flint and Austin Powers, and, uh, you know, uh, an man, episode like Our Man Bashir. Where not man, that Our Man, all becomes or part what's, that, what's that one I'm trying to think of? The guy throws, throws the shoe. Get Smart. That's the one Oh, I'm Get Smart, of course, of course. Yeah, so so the parodies and that, that pop culture language around James Bond is just as much a part of the James Bond phenomenon as Bond itself. Right. And so, I mean, like I said, I figured it was time that we could talk about that now. Uh, everybody seems to have uh, their favorite Bond, whether it's, um, you know, we, I mean, we, and we've had quite a number of them over the years. Uh, I'm just looking down a list of uh, eight that I've got dressed right in front of me. Mm. Uh, Are you starting with Barry Nelson? Uh, Barry Nelson is on that list. All right. We got Barry <laughs> right. Nelson. We got Derry, uh, David Niven. Yep, uh, yep. Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and Daniel Craig. That's the list that I've got. Uh, don't forget Did I miss Peter anybody? Sellers. Yeah, Peter Sellers, Woody Allen, Ursula Andres, um, literally everybody in Casino Royale who was called James Bond. See, this is why we bring you on. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's fair. That's fair. Like, I knew about yeah. Niven, but I didn't go back as far as, uh, as, as uh, the name that you mentioned that I just have already forgotten. Uh, yeah, well, see, in, yeah, in yeah. that, yeah, David Niven is Sir James Bond in the yes. movie Casino Royale, but all the other characters then are James Bond as well, and it's yeah, not a great movie, but it is very <laughs> stylized, and I kind of dig that period, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've always kind of had this, I mean, knowing you, uh, I haven't known you as long as, like I said, Jim has, but uh, mm. I know that there's certain aspects of your... Uh, your fandom that you kind of wear on your sleeve. You like to yeah. dress up nice. You like yes. to eat fancy foods. You yes. like to go on like cruise ships and, and things like that. And uh, you have a very jet setty kind of way of life. that's kind of buried kind of in that same mystique as the whole uh, gentleman spy thing. Definitely. Uh, I like to think uh, they, they, they run You counter. said you were not going to blow John's cover today, <laughs> Kevin. You said you, you, you're coming. You're, 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 we got to edit this. You're coming very yeah, 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 close to blowing up my new spot here. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, you, you're right. I mean, uh, in all the myriad ways that our fandoms influence our lives and our outlook and our, our language and how we see the world and interact with each other, my fandom of this type of spy genre 
is something that I have absorbed, hopefully to a healthy degree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that might be debatable. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, 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 um, it just sort of stuck with me. There, there was something about, you even go back to the Ian Fleming books and the description of dinners that, that were eaten, of the, the loving care gone into mixing a cocktail. You know, the, these were all the things that really struck a nerve with me. And at some point sort of became cool in the Bond movies, then became a parody in the Bond movies, then became cool again. <laughs> and that's where I like to live my life, somewhere, somewhere on that fine line between cool and parody. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Uh, did you have, now I, everyone asks this question, and I know this is kind of a subjective question uh, mm -hmm. based upon when you come into the fandom or not, but uh, uh, do you have a favorite James Bond? Now, I know I have mine, and I know who I came in with, and yeah. uh, as, as our special guest, you get to go first. Who, who would you say is your favorite Bond, and, and, and why? I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say, uh, because <laughs> my... Um, I, look, the, the cop-out answer is to say that all of those bonds are correct for the time in which they were making those movies. That so, is a good answer. Yeah. Sean Connery is the right bond for those movies started in 1962. Um, George Lazenby even, not the strongest actor, but he was the right bond to take on that version of that telling of a Bond story. Roger Moore is the correct Bond for the 70s. I love what Timothy Dalton brought by doing kind of a reset of the character in the late 80s, right? Pierce Brosnan, I was very excited about, but then in retrospect, didn't like as much. Not to say that he's bad or I dislike Pierce Brosnan, but I think those don't hold up as well as they did at the time. Um, and then Daniel Craig, I... I think he is the right choice to reset and reboot Bond the way that they did. All that said, that's the cop-out answer, right? <laughs> All that said, the first Bond I remember seeing in a theater was Spy Who Loved Me, starring Roger Moore. To me, that is the definitive version of his Bond. And... I think that I think he is the bond that I am most likely to go home and pop the Blu-ray into the player to watch. Doesn't take away from my love of like I think Goldfinger is the template for every Bond movie that ever came afterward. I think Connery is this iconic figure, right? But if I want to sit down and watch a Bond movie that I'm going to enjoy and have a smile on my face from beginning to end, it's probably going to be the spy who loved me. And if I wanted to hang out with any of those actors, it would probably, it would have been Sir Roger or Pierce Brosnan. I think the, those would be the guys to hang with. So there you go. All right. Uh, and I know Jim's is going to get rather inflammatory here in a minute. He's going to oh, I can't wait. His can't love wait. of, that is his the, absolute that's, that's, love. That's you know, the answer I was hoping for. There's <laughs> really is like trying to pick your favorite child. Yeah, right. In, in a lot of ways. Um, right. For, for, for me, it's kind of funny because I, I kind of, I, I'm not, I don't know as much about Bond as, as John does, but I love the movies. And for me, my favorite Bond, there's, there's some BTS drama that kind of folds into this one, but my favorite Bond is, uh, is Pierce Brosnan only because um, he was offered the role before he was able to accept it. 
Yeah. Um, before Timothy Dalton got the role, they offered it to Pierce Brosnan, and he was, I feel like, sort of like, and we had a discussion about, you know, who's your favorite Batman, who's your favorite Superman, like, a, about a year and a half ago on the show, and, and sort of like, a lot of it boils down to, like, physically, and, and, and uh, Pierce Brosnan is a guy you physically want, he's, he's just got that perfect sort of, like, that twinkle in the eye and the square jaw, and he physically represents Bond to me, but also because he um, he was offered the role, and the Remington Seal folks at the time said, no, you're under contract, we're not going to let you go do that, and then they canceled the show and really fucked him over after they yeah. had signed Dalton to a couple of films, so he had to wait his turn, and when he came to it, I think I feel like his performances, he really brought that extra all right, it's my turn. I finally got this thing that I was supposed to have, you know, a couple of years ago. And I think he really brought a, a certain nuance and ferocity to that role that, um, that really, uh, I, I think came to define it for the sort of like second half of, I, I look at him, I look at, at, at Brosnan as being the tipping point between like the classic bond and the modern yep. bond. Uh, I um, think that's very so, fair. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm glad that he got the role when he did yes. because he needed a few more years of age on him. I, to you know, he was great in Remington Steel, but I felt like he needed to mature into the role a little bit to play Bond, and I think they got him at exactly the right time for that. And he only got with like three movies, I think. Um, uh, I think he did four. Uh, okay, let's see. Brosnan, yeah. he, his, did, his... Uh, he did Goldeneye, he mm-hmm. did uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not yeah. Enough, and Die Another Day. Die Another Day. Okay, yeah. yeah. His, his tenure was not uh, it was was not as long as as uh, Connery's or Moore's, but uh, I think he really brought something to the role. And and in no small part, also, I love Brosnan because. Um, I'm a gamer. We talk about that a lot, and and mm. Goldeneye factored very heavily. I, <laughs> yeah. I had so many. Uh, I you mean, know, yeah. Co- you know the the split screen uh, versus mode with uh, you. You don't get to pick odd job. You know, drop the golden gun. All the things that you know in, in the sort of like high school and, and and college years that define that that co op gaming experience. Yeah. Those blocky graphics. I could still remember them. Jesus, stop looking at my screen. You're cheating. You screen looker. <laughs> So when when I rewatched Goldeneye not that long ago, I had a new appreciation for that movie. I, I thought it was great at the time, and then I, I, I kind of I, I wasn't as interested in the Brosnan movies overall. But I went back and rewatched Goldeneye, and I think that it, it is such a strong start for him as Bond. Like everything came together. Yes. It's visually great. He's wonderful in it. Um, I'm a big fan of Tomorrow Never Dies, which I feel like is a lot of people's least favorite Pierce Brosnan movie. Isn't that the uh, one with Michelle Yeoh? Yep, yep. And I think I she's great in, in it. Yeah. I think there are a lot of good earned moments for Bond in that. But then I feel like the last two were a steady slope downward for him. And I wish that those scripts had not been as weak. Um, it, it's sort of how I feel about Timothy Dalton. I wish he had gotten a third movie because there are so many great elements of his too. And if only he'd stuck on for a third one, I feel like they could have really tightened up the script to fit him specifically. With Brosnan, I feel like it was the opposite. I feel like his first two just went off with a bang, and then the next two kind of were this steady decline. Yeah. So now, Jim, you've said your favorite. Now, who's your least favorite? You said you had something you wanted to say. Might as well get it off your chest. Well, I, I, I do, but before we Let's delve into uh, minor negativity, I, I, I still you haven't yeah. given us your favorite yet. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll, put, we'll put a pin in that then. Uh, the yeah. first, the first Bond movie that I remember seeing uh, was License to Kill, mm. and I don't know that I saw it when it came out because I'd have been what 12, 11 or twelve. 
Mm-hmm. So it might have been a little bit age inappropriate for me at that point. Um, but that was the first Bond movie that I remember seeing. Of course, Timothy Dalton's uh, last foray as uh, James Bond. Uh, so that kind of had a place for me in 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 my brain as far as that goes. But I, I did go out and see all of the uh, the Brosnan movies, I believe, in the theaters. Uh, so there was that. And then... Um, I've seen quite a number of the uh, uh, the newer Bond movies in the theaters as well. So I mean, it's it's difficult for me to pick. I mean, I I unlike you, I don't have a real problem with Daniel Craig. I think uh, like like John was saying, he was kind of the right person to take the job on at the time in the climate that we live in, in the culture that we live in. Each of these Bonds takes a different kind of tack, and they. Like, if you go back and look at, like, the original, like, the Dr. No, uh, or, you know, from Russia with Love, you go back and look at all the the Sean Connery Bonds, for instance, um, there's a lot more of that male sexism, chauvinism, um, mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff appears. But as you watch these movies, and if you watch them in order, I'm not going to say it goes away, because it doesn't. That's just gonna. That's kind of baked into the overall nature of what James Bond was. What the this, sort of open objectification and misogyny of like the Bond girl. That's right. that's aged poorly in some cases, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But um, but it it is it is a part of the character. You're absolutely right. It, it sort of but, has to but, be addressed if, and taken at face value, I suppose. Yeah, but as you watch them in order, uh, and of course there's 26 of them. That's an that's a yeah. that's a week long affair. But <laughs> as you watch them in order, you see kind of a, a not necessarily a steep decline, but you see kind of a a lessening of the way they treat well, like characters like Monty Penny or the or the Bond girls, um, which of course they get a lot of uh, shit in like Austin Powers with a lot of a China, mm. or the, I mean these overtly sexualized. Uh, what was the Xenia on the top, right? Yeah, wasn't that the one Jensen's from uh, yeah, yeah. Goldeneye? Yeah. yeah, and and I mean they they're just overtly sexualized, but as a, at a point, it's become less. I guess I don't know. Uh, more more a product of our times and less a product of like the sixties or the seventies yeah. or or whatever yeah. it is. But uh, I mean, and I try not to let that color my opinions of you know which Bond movies I like or don't like or. Because, yeah. again, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Same thing happened in Star Trek, if you recall, John. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Jim's not going to get this one, but uh, <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, uh, <laughs> during the cage, where yeah. uh, Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike mentions having a woman on the bridge, yeah, in reference to uh, number one, yeah. yeah, um, that doesn't age real well. And in fact, I think they did a lot of what they did with the new Star Trek, new Strange New Worlds, to counter that. Because yeah. now there's a lot of women on the bridge. And they all yep. kick ass. Yeah. And they're yeah, all yeah, we do a little for, bit I mean, of uh, yeah, we do a little bit of hand waving in the cage and just sort of like, oh forget that line. Just ignore that line because <laughs> number one is there and she's so good and she's mm-hmm. such a, an integral part of the crew. So you just do the hand waving like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't really mean that. Uh, well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's the mid sixties. Like in that, Ian Fleming's last Bond novel was sixty six. So yeah, you kind of yeah. have to consider it as being a, a product of the zeitgeist. But like you hinted at a little bit there, Kevin. My and I, I, I'm gonna. 
do a little bit of uh, trying trying to do a little bit of fancy rhetorical footwork here because uh, I absolutely oh, agree with John my, that that every... my favorite Bond. I'm sorry, I'm going <laughs> to have to say it. Probably was yeah. Daniel Craig. Oh, your favorite is Daniel Craig. I think okay. so. So, so who's I, your least more favorite relatable? Le- least favorite? I don't really have a least favorite. Maybe George Lazenby. Okay. I didn't really dig that movie okay. at all. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's yeah. hard to pick a least favorite only because right because they've all got something. Yeah, th- there's always some reason for that actor to be there when and when they are and where they are, and then it's the scripts that sort of. I, you know, some are really strong and some just aren't. And and it's too bad yeah. because sometimes an actor gets saddled with work that is just not for them. I think um, it was just coming off of, of Sean Connery, whose work I thought was really strong and, and stellar yeah. in the role. And I just didn't think George Lazenby had it. And, That's and always then, a great what if is, you yeah. know, what if Connery had stuck around to make Honor Majesty's Secret Service? Would that yeah. have then been the pinnacle, the ultimate Bond movie? Because it was much more sophisticated storytelling than the right. previous movies. But then Connery comes back and he makes Diamonds for Forever, which is just not yeah. that good. Like, right. I, you know, I dig its weird early 70s style, like, but it feels like an American-made uh, you know, cop movie, TV movie of the week that they just stuck James Bond into. Like, it's got a very a different bit, yeah. vibe, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, sorry I got to split that. with Kevin a little bit. I didn't bit mean to interrupt I'm you, sorry. Of, no, 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 no. Yeah. I, I, I split with you a little bit, and I, I, I absolutely 100% have to say I agree with John that every Bond is, is a Bond of his time and is appropriate for the time that he's in. So this is actually more a criticism of the zeitgeist in which the Daniel Craig movies are made than it is of Daniel Craig, who I love mm-hmm. as an actor. I'm going to disclaimer that right out of the gate. I love Daniel Craig as an actor. I think he's fantastic. I love him and everything he's been in. I just don't think he was ever right for Bond. And there are some mm-hmm. pretty there are some reasons for that that I that I sort of cling to a little bit. Um, when you when you look at Bond physically, like I said, you want to see like a Pierce Brosnan of the world. He's got the shock of dark hair, the mm-hmm. square jaw, the sort of like the, the steely eyes. And I think, first and foremost, Daniel Craig was physically wrong for the role. He's round-faced, sandy-haired. He looks like a dock worker. And that's not a dig on Daniel <laughs> Craig at all. But if you look at the sort yeah. of history of, I mean, when, when, I remember it being very controversial when, when Roger Moore kind of had, like, chestnut hair instead of, like, yeah. raven hair. You know, I mean, right. so you, you, right. you, and Daniel Craig is blonde. I mean, he's, he's a very blonde guy. And I think what happened with Bond, and you saw this kind of happen in how he related to characters like Q and M in, in, in earlier parts of, the, of his tenure. Um, Daniel Craig, I don't think when, when, when you want when you, when you look at Bond, you want it, you want a guy who is uh, just as comfortable punching up goons in a warehouse as he is sitting at a baccarat table in Monaco. You want to have mm. he's, that duality of that character, that gentleman spy. Mm. He's he's physically very dangerous, but he also can like pass in high society, and I don't see that with Daniel Craig. He he, he would look out of place at like a high-end cocktail party in like some some uh, some billionaire casino somewhere. He just looks <laughs> physically a little wrong for the part. And I think what happened and this is again, like John said, this is this is more of a uh, the right bond for the right time. But there's been this in the last maybe 15, 20 years, a very um, clear template for what an action movie needs to be. And you need to have like this kind of punchy hero who gets in there and is kind of like, you know, square jawed cigar chomping, your classic sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of action hero. And I kind of feel like 
they they removed a little bit of the sort of like subterfuge cloak and daggers sort of like intrigue from the character and just kind of turned Bond into a real generic action hero. And mm-hmm. in that sense, I think Daniel Craig's perfect for it because he's very physical when he does the sort of like um uh the the uh um Oh gosh, it wasn't Ursula Andress who was it with the uh, the, the cornrows? Um, Bo Derek coming oh, out of yeah. the water, and then he does that in his own <laughs> film where he comes out of the water and he's wearing the tiny shorts. There's a nice flip, I think, from the uh, sort of like sexual objectification dynamic. But it also like he comes out of the water and he just looks like he looks like somebody who would like um, punch you at a soccer match for sipping his beer accidentally. <laughs> I don't get the gentleman aspect from Daniel Craig, and that's not a dig on yeah. him at all. I love him. But yeah. I feel like, and this was kind of exemplified, I think, when the, the Bond thing, they sort of, in a couple of his movies, they winked at the wrong shit. Like, I think they really needed mm. to kind of break down the sexism a little more. But I remember the scene where um, the, the, the much younger uh, Q that replaced John Cleese. I don't oh, remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ben Wishaw. Yes, Ben Wishaw, yeah, fantastic yeah, yeah. actor. Yeah. But there's a scene in one of the movies, and they kind of blur together if you see a bunch of them, where he meets Bond in a museum, and he slides a, a gun across the bench to him, and he opens it up, and it's a gun. Oh, watch, Bond, were you expecting a laser watch? Yes, I fucking was. It's a James Bond movie. <laughs> or like when he's in the Aston Martin with M, and she's like, oh, don't worry, James, we've taken out the ejection seat. Don't bother looking for it. I feel like they were kind of like... Poking, they're kind of poking the sillier shit, like the laser watches and the ejection seats. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's part and parcel of the character. You want Bond means gadgets. You want to see yeah. M talking to him about what his mission is, and then you want to see Q hand him some some very specific pieces of kit that will come into play later. <laughs> that's a surprise tool that can help us later. But right, they, they have plot, to. You know, yeah. yeah if if he, gives, if he gives him a laser watch, he's going to need to cut through some rope bonds. He's just yeah. going to have to do that. Yeah. So I I really feel like they were sort of like letting the air out of the wrong stuff. If, in, in the 2020s, even the 2010s, you want to kind of like do like John said and hand wave off the sexism. What you don't want to do is kind of undermine what makes Bond Bond and turn him into a generic action hero. And I feel like those have been the weaknesses of the Craig films. Um, excellent, uh, excellent monologue there. Well, well said, well done. Uh, and, and you bring up uh, Chekhov's laser watch. I, I think yes, that's, that, that, that's the issue with Bond movies. But yeah. um, well, you did bring up something I want to touch on, though, and I, and I apologize, John, if I'm stepping on you. No, here, no, but, no, please. Uh, you mentioned the. Uh, the very image of a gentleman spy. You say Daniel yeah. Craig looks like a dock worker. He doesn't look. He doesn't have the right color hair. He doesn't have. And the I love right Daniel features. Craig. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's being said. We we get that. However, there's been a large discourse in uh, media uh, surrounding who should take the mantle of James Bond next mm-hmm. in the wake of Daniel Craig, and there's been a lot of push for either a female represented James Bond. Or a uh, person of the African American culture being James Bond, maybe not African American, but uh, of the African descent. Like uh, Idris Elba was a strong contender for a while, and still is, from what I understand. Um, which begs the question: uh, Are we able to get past the canon? Are we able to get past the established James Bond? in order to get to something that could potentially tell different stories, a different kind of story. Mm. Uh, like, I know they brought Lavonna Parrish in to uh, potentially replace, not necessarily James Bond, but 007 mm. uh, in, the Jan- in the Daniel Craig movies. And then they brought uh, Idris Elba's name into the hat as far as a possible replacement. They floated a lot of different replacements. 
I believe Tom Holland, Hugh Jackman, people like them are always on the list. But uh, are we going to be able to get past our mind's eye image of what James Bond is or was or what's written on the page in books put down 60 years ago to move into something that's more representational of media and culture as a as it sits right now? How right. do we how do we rectify that? Well, thanks for lighting that powder keg. Um, <laughs> well done. Send all negative emails. Do yeah. your fandom at gmail.com. Yes. Um, yeah, boy, that that is a really tough one because I, I, for whatever my fandom is, I don't want to be a slave to canon because canon is just a tool for writers. It uh-huh. is the thing that is there to uh, apply some guardrails when you've got writers coming in on a project. You say, hey, look, we can write about this stuff or here are the, the traits of this character, now go. Now go be creative. I, right, I think yeah. it's, it's sort of a, a useless exercise for fans. Like, it could be fun academically to try to fill in canon holes when you, you know, uh, see something that doesn't quite fit. Cool, be creative, do your own thing as a fan. Um, Bond is a really tricky one. The good thing about Bond is that the characters exist in this not quite real world, but like a hyper real version of Mm -hmm. our world. So they're in real places and real countries with real stakes. They're not out in space on starships that haven't been invented yet. Unless it's Moonraker, but we don't talk about it. Yeah, unless it's Moonraker, but yeah, we only watched the first half of that movie. Yeah. Um, All right, the first half has got some great stuff in it, yeah. Um, So I, I think there is only so far that you can get away from the basic traits of the character. And I don't necessarily want to be so blind as to say that that has to do with skin color, but let me take this with a different angle. Um, The way that they connected, say, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service with, was it the beginning of For Your Eyes Only, and then into License to Kill. You refer to this basic trait that Bond was married, her name was Tracy, then she died, and here, here's this thing that is in Bond's life. We don't have to put a specific date on it. We don't have to apply it in exactly the same way every time the story is told. But here's a basic trait that informs who this character is. Mm-hmm. We got a little bit more of that in, um, I think it was in Skyfall, where we really dug a little bit deeper into Bond's an orphan, his parents were killed on this ski trip, blah, blah, blah. He went to this particular boarding school, blah, blah, blah. Like, these are the things that I think are maybe not critical, but I think they, they need some strong consideration when you decide to rewrite who a character is. Yeah. Like, let's have some of these connective tissue things that do go back to the books that do get exposed, maybe toyed with a little bit in the movies for dramatic purpose, and let's let those continue through into the next version of that character. Yeah. So I'm really on the fence about that. It's like, okay, could you have a black woman play James Bond? Sure. I don't want to say that you can't create a character for a new generation that 
can then be something that is relevant to a new audience. At the same time, why are you doing that when you have all these other established traits, all the, these other things that make Bond who we think Bond is, when then what you've done is you've created this other potentially very interesting character, and one of you said it, Moneypenny. Moneypenny became this great fleshed out character who had a life of her own and skills of her own other than just sitting in the office outside M's office, you know? So could we explore that? Could that become its own storyline? And it's a Bond really also exists in that world. Yeah. It's, it's so sticky because it, on the one hand, you don't want to fall into the trap of you're a white creator who's trying to be, you know, somebody who... Uh, you're recasting this character as a colorblind character just for the sake of sort of like doing what the culture demands or whether it's right for yeah. the character. And if you do one versus the other, you're going to be accused of doing the other thing. Because, I mean, right, I remember right. Idris Elba has been talked about as being Bond for a very, very long time. I'd personally love to see it, but it is one of those things where... I, when they started talking about Idris Elba as Bond, they actually kind of... There were some articles, and I remember reading them at the time, but they're quite a bit in the past now, so I can't really call them up and give any credit to who said these things, but they're not original thoughts, so I want to make that clear. <laughs> that when you've got this character, somebody said, so are we to understand that in the universe of James Bond, let's just say in, in, in James Bond's world, in that version of MI6 or whatever, whatever, Interpol, whatever you have with that, is the James Bond name and the 007 designation just that? Are, are we to believe this is different different actors playing the same person, playing the same character, or within the structure of this agency is James Bond 007 just the latest name and and number they give whoever fills that role in the agency? Is well, it like I think a, they, or is it they like put a, that um, they put a, that to bed with Skyfall, I think. Uh, when they revealed that it wasn't just a code name, that it was his yeah. actual name, it was his familial yeah. name. So we so are to believe they, I think that they heard the that same and person. tried to take on on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and, and I look at it like, uh, well, like Star Trek. I mean, Captain Kirk is a singular character, and there are actors yeah. who have played that role of Captain Kirk other than William Shatner. But Starfleet and the Star Trek universe is a much bigger thing, and you can have multiple captains and multiple stories within that universe that aren't necessarily all about this one character. In fact, I wish we would stop making stories about Captain Kirk just... <laughs> Enough. All right, we're done. We're done. Starfleet um, is huge. It is right. Right. Well, and, and you mentioned Idris Elba. Uh, you go back to the. I think it was the Brosnan films, and uh, you had this character introduced in a couple of them. Uh, uh, Charles Robinson, played by Colin Salmon, who I thought immediately he should get his own spinoff. It, mm -hmm. Whatever number he is, 008, 009, I don't care. Give this guy his own movie because I would watch him as the lead in that movie anytime. He doesn't need to be James Bond. He already has a character, Charles Robinson, and he already works with MI6. Unfortunately, now, Colin Salmon is 60 years old. Look, he's probably <laughs> still a very handsome, fit 60 years old, <laughs> but you probably don't want to start a, an action film series with your lead actor at 60 if you plan to make you know five six seven more of them um but like he's somebody who had in mind like th this is perfect a at the time of uh die another day it was a die another day yeah with uh, uh halle berry um yeah. the intention was that jinx would have her own spinoff that movie was problematic in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It was not that great, and I feel like she was wasted in it, and they 
shot themselves in the foot uh, by, you know, uh, uh, doing the movie that they did. They ruined their chances of creating a spinoff for her. But I think there are many, many, many ways to do this without having to say, okay, now James Bond is something different. Uh, James Bond yeah. can be James Bond, but we can also expand his world quite a bit. And I think that they they really started to do that with... Um, it was a failed attempt with Jinx. It was a much better attempt with Moneypenny uh, when we got her in the Craig movies. I was excited to see more of her for sure. Now, I think we have the same argument um, that goes on through a lot of different uh, aspects of nerd media. Uh, more, most recently, I've, I heard it with uh, uh, The Little Mermaid when they cast uh, Halle Bailey mm. as uh, Ariel. And everyone mm. threw up their hands and... and mock outrage about oh my god they cast a black girl as, as ariel why can't they just <laughs> why can't they just make up a new character if they want a new representation yeah you don't yeah, you know. i mean it's yeah. like like jim yeah. says it's a really tricky slope we had the same thing yeah. when yeah. Uh, uh michael b jordan was brought on as uh uh the human torch for, for oh, we had Tilda Swinton the ancient one movie. the mcu yeah Tilda swinton you know well, but the whole the whole color a bit more deserved thing, a funny yeah. thing it's yeah. it's or real Michael sticky. Michael Clark Duncan as Kingpin. Yeah, Be, I love that though. I love him as Kingpin. Yeah, so did I. So did I. Well, yeah. I think I think the thing the, the thing that people have a problem with is well, the direction in which it goes tends to be one of those things that kind of pulls the, the either the bigots or the the progressives out of the woodwork because I mean if you have Michael Clark Duncan as Kingpin as as uh, as Wilson Fisk in the in the um, the Affleck Daredevil movie. Um, that actually works because it's it's a role that was traditionally of of a white dude going to an actor of color, and so then it's not as right. much of a big deal as like ScarJo playing you know the lead role in Ghost in the Shell. It's just not because we ha we, we we have so many LGBTQ actors, we have so many actors of color, mm -hmm. we have so many actors that that are traditionally very underrepresented in even the roles that are written for them. That we just kind of have to figure this shit out, but. It's it's interesting. I and maybe it's hypocritical of me. Like I, I've seen, I saw somebody make the argument, and I did not agree with it. But I saw mm -hmm. somebody make the argument that I was like, huh, how about that? When they're saying, you know, why why can't we just, you know, uh, why is it a problem to have to have uh, you know actors of color or, or diverse actors playing traditionally white characters? That shouldn't be a problem. And then like the same people that were uh, like the whole Hamilton thing, where you have like uh, mm. actors of, of of color playing traditionally, you know, white historical characters. Mm -hmm. That's something that's, that's viewed as really progressive and not a problem, and it shouldn't be. And it's just it, yeah. again, the whole thing is just so it's just a big ball of like zeitgeist wax, where you've got race and and gender and diversity and and yeah. sexual orientation, all these things kind of like playing into it. And and I think the dust will settle eventually, but. I don't know really where it's going to go. I just really, I'm, I'm always in favor of, of more and better representation. Um, but I also can understand why somebody would be like, you know, uh, I, I look at James Bond and I want to see a certain type of actor. I want to see um, somebody like Hugh Jackman. Or I want to see, um, who's the, I'm going to muff this a little bit. Um, who's the guy who played the lead in Croup here? Owen, Owen, uh, not Owen Wilson, um, Clive Owen. Uh, Clive oh, Owen yeah, yeah, yeah. was, Clive, was a guy Clive who got Owen tossed around a lot too. Yeah. And yeah, Gerard back. Butler and a lot of these, you know, yeah. you want to see like a British white guy in that role to, to some degree, but also how, how, 
not progressive is that in 2022? Yeah. I mean, you got it really forces you to confront a lot of things of, you know, how much am I entitled to be? I don't own this property. This is entertainment that's for me, but not everything has to be for me. And, and am I going to enjoy it less if it's, you know, Tiana Paris? Um, you know, in the role. I mean, how, how much is it going to bother me? And it, it really does become one of these things that, that is an ongoing cultural conversation. We're not obviously going to solve today, but it's it's one of those things that I you really got to kind of yeah, break it down issue. and check it out and examine yeah. examine your own views on things and, and confront yourself over some things. Absolutely. I mean, uh, context is so critical there because we're asking when does a casting choice like that, uh, when is it about, you know, talent and story and character yeah. and serving all of those needs and is there is there a legitimate consideration about the message of representation kind of the political position of doing that people yeah. freaked out when a woman got cast as doctor who at uh, the doctor i should say um and you know, here is a character that is a Gallifreyan time lord with two hearts, is 900 years old, played by multiple actors of multiple ages and types over the years. There is no reason that the Doctor can't be a woman. By the way, also played by Joanna Lumley in the uh, the, the short film they did for the... Uh, I think they did it for the children in need thing years and years ago. So there was precedent for that already, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, but that is not a thing to get freaked out about at all. Uh, uh, you know, the little mermaid. Okay, fine. A mermaid is a fantastical character. Not, not defined by very specific traits other than having fins. So um, I have, Certainly no problem with that. And if we are sending partly with that a political message, or like with Hamilton, as he mentioned, I think there is a message to be sent to the audience by casting uh, people of diverse backgrounds into those roles. I think that is an important and necessary component of that, of telling that story. Yeah. But then you get down to, okay, how granular are we with the traits that we expect out of a certain fictional character or many yep. fictional. Uh, uh, what should Superman look like? What should James Bond look like? What should Captain Kirk look like? What should Batman look like? I, it, you know, the good news is we're playing in a fictional space, so you can experiment with those things and you can also kind of backtrack on those things if they don't necessarily work. That is one thing that... Um, uh, regardless of your misgivings about Daniel Craig as a type, uh, I, I think this is one of the best handled reboots of a legacy character that has ever been attempted in pop culture. Uh, yeah. Where you can take a movie franchise that's 60 years old, at the time pushing 50 years old when they did the first uh, Craig movie, uh, Casino Royale, and... Um, just wipe the slate clean, reinvent the justification for that character and what exists in that character's world. So it was funny, you know, Kevin, at the beginning of this discussion, you, you talked about the things that I enjoy in my personal life and yes. whether it's uh, clothes or martinis or whatever, you know, these are things that I said kind of became a parody in the Bond world. And it, you see a character like Austin Powers pick up a cocktail or wear a tuxedo or whatever and go, oh, okay, they're parodying the James Bond style, which in essence became a parody of itself. 
But then you get to the mid 2000s, then you have this new actor in the role and they made this very bold decision to say, okay, we're starting from scratch. Nothing else before this exists in James Bond's world. So all, yeah, so all the things that we will give you as the James Bond audience, you want an Aston Martin? Okay, we're gonna give you an Aston Martin, but we're gonna tell you why it's there. And it, it's this car that's been in Bond's life sitting in a, you know, sitting in a garage, covered up for however many years. Uh, you want Bond to have a PPK? Cool, here's when he gets it. Uh, he, he, uh, a villain like Blofeld, well, he doesn't just exist sort of in a vacuum out of nowhere. We're going to give a little reason for him to be in this world. So, and then by the time you add it all up, I thought they did a really nice job of it in uh, No Time to Die by choosing set design that mimic the Ken Adam set design starting back in Dr. No, these big, vast, like, uh, you know, concrete geometric slabs. Okay, in Ken Adam's world, in that James Bond world from the 1960s, they just existed because it was science fiction, it was fantastical, and that's how it looked. But you have to justify why those things exist now and in those last sequences in uh, No Time to Die, it became an abandoned Soviet submarine base that Spectre had taken over and kind of reestablished. Cool. So now we know why those things look the way they do, why they exist in Bond's world. You justify its existence, and the audience can accept it instead of it just being, oh, this is the Bond style because we said so. Yeah, brutalist architecture. Yeah. Nothing communicates ex-Soviet more, more so than that. Exactly, exactly. I want to be clear about this because it really yeah. is a weird cognitive dissonance moment for me too. Yeah, yeah. I don't dislike Daniel Craig's films. I think yeah, the films yeah, are yeah, really yeah. good. Narratively, yeah. the stories yeah. and the production, everything about the films was great. I just would have loved to have seen like, Orlando Bloom or Henry Cavill do it. That's just, that's it. I mean, physically, oh, yeah. well, I just I mean, feel like Henry he was kind of wrong for the role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, Henry Cavill, he, okay. I, I feel He's like when he everything. did The Man from Uncle, that, that was his uh, James Bond audition movie. And, and I wish that <laughs> Uncle yeah. had been a success and they could have carried on doing those because that would have been the 60s James Bond reinvented and with Henry Cavill in the role. Which, which I kind of also feel like, uh, if I can do like a, a, a junior high analogy with the uh, mm -hmm. colons separating things, I think um, Trek is to Orville as Bond is to Kingsman the Secret Service as well. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I look at Kingsman as kind of being the the uh, modern continuation of that idea where you've got the gadgets, you've got the sort of global stakes, you've got the sort of winky misogyny of the woman being the prize at the end and all that, but it's done in a way that sort of like tweaks the older tropes more so than really dovetails into them, I think. But um, yeah, there's, there's a lot about that that I really liked, especially... Um, the, the embodiment of the trope of the, you know, the villain kind of has a point when you look at um, uh, Valentine, the Samuel Jackson character, where, yeah, the world is overpopulated, we are kind of a virus, and if we did kill off a bunch of people, then it might kind of be better, but then, of course, COVID hit, and we all went, oh, maybe not, but okay, so we'll we'll see what happens with that. But anyway, I kind of <laughs> think that there are, there's ways to, to bring these tropes into a modern narrative that I think Bond is playing with, and other properties that are sort of adjacent to Bond, in the same way that like the Orville is adjacent to Trek, kind of brings those things in and modernizes them in ways that make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they, they had to do that with the Bond movies. I, I think it would have just felt, at a certain point, like, 
look, you can only do so much with just bringing in a new actor, going to a mm-hmm. new location. That, that only gets you so far. And uh, to take the legacy of something that was 50 years old and say, no, we're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to do this new. And, and look, spoiler for anybody who hasn't caught all five of the Daniel Craig movies, uh, <laughs> I'm very sorry to tell you that James Bond dies at the end of it. And yeah. I'm so glad and not, not they even did a nebulous that. death. Not even a, a no. maybe he died. It's a no. definite. He's definitely dead. He's dead. He's dead. And I'm he glad he did have they time to die. As that. it turns out, he did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because uh, first of all, that's how James Bond is supposed to die. Yeah. He's supposed to die in in, in the, the the thick of his struggle with you know the bad guy. Saving the rest of the world, doing literally putting his life on the line. That's how James Bond is supposed to die. Not hooked up to a ventilator at 90 years old, right? <laughs> right. So this is how Bond should go out. Yeah. And it also sends a signal just about the filmmaking, which is we rebooted him. We can tell this story in its own self-contained unit of five movies. And then guess yeah. what? We can do it again. We, we can go recreate Bond in a new, fresh way. I hope they give it some time. I, I don't want another Bond movie next year. Um, I hope it's a few years from now. Uh, that's why I, like, I, I get a little weird when uh, people start speculating who will be the next Bond because I feel like it's always way off the mark and it's always who's popular right now. Okay, right. granted... Henry Cavill, yes, he is the right guy. But well, he can't but, do everything, though. Uh, he, can't he can't do be everything. Superman right. and Geralt and uh, the new uh, Highlander. He sure the hell he, can. He would be perfect. He would be. Well, he yeah. Can. All right. He would be perfect, though. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm wrong, I'm, Chief. But I'm waiting for somebody who, you know, that, that's why I like, say, a Daniel Craig or, or a Timothy Dalton in there because they're not a genre star already. Yeah. You know, yes, they're, they're well-known actors who have, you know, some public recognition, but not for already being that character. And like we were saying earlier with Pierce Brosnan, he was already known as that character because of Rings mm-hmm. and Steel. But I think the best thing that happened to him is that we had that gap between Remington Steel and when he actually got the role because they screwed him over on the contract and you, you had to have Dalton in there for a couple of movies in the, in the midterm. So, um, yeah, I, I hope we get somebody who's not super well-known, but then in a few years we look at that actor and we go, oh, yeah, boy, that's a really cool choice. Hopefully we're still talking about Idris Elba back then, because I really, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Idris Elba. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He's He'd great. Be great. Yeah. And he's got to try to well, Star Trek. So, hey, look at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, before we, get too, too, uh, to Star Trek. Yeah. before we get too, too tight on time here, I know we got, we, we've eaten up a lot of John's afternoon, but I wanted yeah. to uh, talk about one aspect of the Bond uh, universe that I have always particularly had a great affinity for, and that is the music. Every yeah. Bond movie gets a signature song, and that's mm-hmm. been as far back as, uh, as I can remember. Um, and in the 80s, these these were not just the song from the movie. They were huge radio hits. We had stuff like mm-hmm. uh, View to a Kill by Duran Duran and Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. And then, yeah. uh, you know, Shirley Bassey is just an absolute powerhouse and Tom Jones. And even like currently with like Billie Eilish, you know, doing the, the Bond songs. Um, that, mm-hmm. that, and uh, didn't Adele get one? I mean, it's just so, yeah. the, the yeah, songs are so 
torchy and so fantastic and they all uh, i don't know who writes them i i, sh- I should have figured that out we don't prepare for this podcast at fucking all but whoever <laughs> writes these songs if it's a cadre of songwriters or just one person who does it they always manage to nail that sort of like just the the spy feel to the point where you can you, yeah. you know that it's a bond song um just just by the way the song kind of evokes this sort of like you know that, da, 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 that sort of intriguey, sort of yeah. like really cloak and daggery feel of it, but but um, to me the, the the song, the opening credits song and the end credits song is just always as much a part of the experience as anything else that happens on screen. Oh, it's critical. It's critical. And you know, back in the day, it was mostly I want to say John Barry, either writing or seriously with his hands in whatever that theme song was going to be. How so did I know Shirley Bassey. <laughs> so it was Shirley Bassey doing Goldfinger or yeah. Tom Jones doing Thunderball. Yeah. Those had uh, John Barry's hands in them to, you know, make those songs what they were. I want to say, really, it was um, Paul McCartney who broke the mold. So mm. when Wings did uh, Live and Live Let and Die, Die. Oh, God, yeah, great, great, song. great song, captured that Bond feel. But that was a Paul McCartney creation. And after that, yeah, you do have either John Barry or whoever was doing, uh, you know, after Barry retired and then died. Um, you've had people like uh, uh, Newman. Uh, is it Thomas Newman? Is that um, anyway? But but you you have the the person who's writing the score, but then it feels like they're kind of getting their hands into the theme song as well mm-hmm. and shaping it, or at least dropping in some orchestration that reminds you, ooh, look, it's not just a pop song. This has also got to be evocative of the movie. and A little uh, bit yeah, retro, but... a little bit futuristic at the same time. Yeah. So good, all of them. Just fantastic. Yeah, I love yeah. all. There's, I'm going down there this been Bond films that I, yeah. This is crazy. Yeah, there have been Bond films I haven't loved, but I've never not loved a Bond song. Right, yeah. I, I yeah. have least favorite Bond songs, but... Would, especially when you take them as a whole with the uh, with the soundtrack with the score, mm. they're really great. Like I, I think the the one Bond theme tune that I ever skip, okay, two, two that I skip <laughs> would be um, uh, All Time High, which was from mm. Octopussy. Yeah. I love the opening credits of that movie, and I love the score from that movie. The score is great, but the theme song is not great. And then I got to say, Madonna, Die Another Day. That's just kind of a wreck, uh, that theme song. But the score is pretty good for that movie. Uh, It's just the theme song is not great. Yeah, but Uh, like Paul McCartney and Carly Simon and Radiohead mm -hmm. and, like you said, Shirley Bassey and and Duran Duran and Louis Armstrong and Sheryl Crow. And, I mean, the list is just incredible. Oh, oh, and big shout-out because, okay, you mentioned Sheryl Crow with the theme song for uh, Tomorrow Tomorrow Never Dies. No, uh, sorry, Tomorrow Never Dies. The far better song is for the closing credits, and that's Katie Lang Mm -hmm. uh, doing Ah, Surrender. Yeah. And that's the song right there. Yeah. So. But yeah. just yeah, you go down this list and it's just household names. You got Tina Turner, you got Cheryl yeah. Crow, you got uh, you know. There's there's not a. It's just a, bangers all, and I just can't. Yeah. I, I've uh, Sam Smith. I've I've loved every one of these songs yeah. as I've seen the yeah. movies, and and the fact that a lot of them became radio hits, I just think is testament to uh, just how seriously they take that portion of the presentation. Yeah, and isn't that cool though that that you can have twenty six movies now, and even if 
some of those theme songs aren't as good as the others. The vast majority all yeah. became hits on their own. They all became like recognizable, memorable songs, even for people who haven't seen the movies. Like Live and Let yeah. Die is yes. such a well-known song. It's such a great da, 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 song. We all have that. Yeah, da, da, it's, so, da, it's in your da, heads. Da. Yeah, yep. and, and people know it even if they haven't seen the movies. And, and that speaks to the, the cultural force that is Bond, not just Bond as a character in a book, not just Bond as a collection of movies, but I always say it's like the, the, the cultural impact of something like Star Trek or The Twilight Zone where people who have never seen one frame of film of Star Trek, they've heard terms like, beam me up, Scotty even though nobody yeah. ever said, beam me up, Scotty, uh, <laughs> on a technicality, you know. Or uh, just saying, oh, that's like something out of the Twilight Zone. Even if you've never seen the Twilight Zone, you know what that is. You know The what lasting cultural impact of those properties mm-hmm. just creeps into the consciousness of, of yeah. the fabric of the culture. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and now for decades, for decades and decades. Yep. Yep. And like you say, it, it's part of the cultural landscape now. The same thing as... Uh, you either know James Bond, you know of James Bond, you know of one of the spoofs or many different uh, send-ups of James Bond, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, uh, The Man from Uncle or, or uh, Austin Powers or what have you. But, I mm-hmm. mean, you know of what we speak, you know. And, and like I said, with the radio hits and everything like that, you know you've, you may not know you've heard a James Bond song. But you've heard right. a James Bond song. You know? Know it. There, yeah. there are very few yeah. things that are that pervasive in the culture. Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, James Bond, where you can just like, you, you can make a reference to it and you know that it's at least going to be present in the mind of the person you're talking to, even if they don't have like a deep familiarity with it. Right. There are so right. few things like that, but this is one of them. It, yeah. it, it's something like, yeah, it's a little weird that our mass media culture reaches that far, but it's also kind of cool that it is our modern mythology. You know, th- yeah. these are all things that have all developed in the last hundred years, and yet they are still culturally relevant, impactful, and these are the kind of metaphors and character discussions that we have with each other that are, are just as meaningful as a mythological character would have been to somebody in another century. Yeah. And because shorthand. Hollywood has run out of ideas, we're going to be telling these same stories <laughs> right, over right. and over and over again. Well, there's only so many stories to tell. Right. Uh, yeah. It's a question of can it be done with artistry and relevance and impact. Don't and ever it, read a screenwriting book or Joseph Campbell. Or yeah, right, because you do movies just, for yourself just forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, John's got to get out of here, so we faces. probably... Uh, yeah, we need to wrap this up because John's the man in demand. He's got a schedule, so... Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, let us know what you guys think. Uh, I know everyone's got an opinion on James Bond, whether you're a, a dyed-in-the-wool James Bond fan or whether it's just something you've passed through in uh, in your in your TV and movie-watching history. Everyone knows of James Bond. Everyone knows uh, a little bit, I think. And like we were talking about with the music, it's rather pervasive to our culture. So who is it that you feel is your favorite James Bond and why? Who do you think would make a better James Bond going forward? Uh, what kind of stories do you think we can tell uh, in this James Bond uh, type of way uh, with the cultural climate that we live in today? That is, these are all things we want to get your opinions about. And you can do that. You can reach out and touch us in a number of different ways. Uh, you can hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash feel your fandom. You can send us a good old-fashioned email at feelyourfandom at gmail.com. 
or at the backup Gmail address at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. You can also find us on what's left of Twitter at at fuel underscore your. And we're currently also on Instagram at at fuel your fandom. And you can find us wherever fine podcasts are bought, sold, traded, and stolen. Uh, on uh, Audible, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find us. We are glad you find us, and we are grateful that, to be in your ear holes. And uh, thank you again to John Champion of the Mission Log Podcast for joining us today to talk James Bond. Super appreciative. And uh, hey, we, uh, we my absolute love pleasure. To thank you. So, John, for our listeners, tell us... Uh, Tell us how we can reach you. Reach out and touch the John Champion side of fandom. <laughs> well, so uh, the other podcasting that I do can all be found at podcast.roddenberry.com. There you'll see all the shows that I'm a part of, uh, primarily Mission Log and Mission Log Live. And then there's Sci-Fi 5 and Trek Files, Mission Log Prodigy, Mission Log Orville. There's just so much out there. So podcast.roddenberry.com. If you're looking for me personally, yes, what is left of Twitter. I, I did download my history the other day. Just you know, uh, Yeah, Same. yeah, just thinking ahead here. Uh, at DVD Geeks, uh, for any of you who still have physical media. And then um, on uh, Instagram, at jchamp72. Or uh, you can also find us uh, on Instagram, at Roddenberry Podcasts. So uh, that will... That will be my locations for now. And, and given all the Trek that's out there and all the Trek that's coming out, uh, my man yeah. has job security. So I'll be breaking that stuff down Yeah, as yeah. long as I keep making it. Yeah, we, we figure that with the main show to get through Voyager and Enterprise, uh, we're looking at another, like, five years, maybe four-ish years to do that. Um, and then there's all these new Star Treks, which we've been doing on Mission Log Live, uh, but that's a different format. So then we have to figure out how do we go back with regular Mission Log. I think for the serialized shows, we have to break those down into bigger pieces. I don't think we can do episode by episode. But yeah, suffice to say, I'll be here Between for a while. Discovery and Enterprise and Lower Decks and Picard and uh, Eesh, Prodigy yeah. and Strange New Worlds. You're going to be busy for a while. Good for and, and shows yet to come. So yeah. the biggest, more I think the Trek biggest the boon with that is that they're down to like a 10 episode or 12 episode season anymore. That, so, that's I a mean, help yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm a huge fan of Mission Log I've, I've said it before Thanks, and I'll man. say it again it's fantastic to see the growth that you guys have been going through the popularity and the surge in, in Trek culture in general and I'm here yeah. for it 100% so John I want to thank you again uh, for spending hey. some of your valuable time with us today always a pleasure I appreciate it so much thank you and, guys uh, we want to thank you guys all for listening to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. Don't forget, head on over to exter.com and get yourself 10% off of the wonderful wallets of your choice. They do make some fantastic products. Coupon code FANDOM at checkout, and you will not be sorry you did. Uh, but from me and Jim, and uh, we just want to thank you for listening to another episode, and we want to remind you that everything is fandom, and fandom is everything. Take care. man whose name you'd love to touch but you mustn't touch <laughs>